In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday after Pentecost, and we continue uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, thinking and reflecting on who is Jesus, knowing uh, the answer to that question, who is Jesus, and when we answer that question, what does it mean for us? When we say that He is our Lord and Savior, what does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for uh, the way that we live our daily lives? And so as we watch Jesus here in Luke chapter 9 and we consider his walking through the, uh, the Samaritan's country and we think about all the different ways that the Samaritans come up in the Gospels, it's important that we have the, uh, the context, the understanding of who the Samaritans are. And much of that context is found, uh, at least a portion of it here in First Kings in this uh, study about Elijah. Because Elijah is uh, ministering to those uh, people of Israel that become uh, the nation of uh, Samaria. So you'll remember that after Moses and Joshua lead the people up out of Egypt and they bring them to the promised land, they cross over the river Jordan. They're there for several hundred years being ruled by judges. The period of Judges is a contentious one. You'll remember people like Deborah and Samson and the amazing things and acts that they do. Uh, but the people are always falling back to their own ways. And they're constantly looking to the surrounding peoples and saying, if only we couldn't be strong like them. And so their desire to be strong like their neighbors leads them to cry out to the Lord asking for a king. And you'll remember that Samuel the prophet is the one who is sent out uh, to anoint Saul to be the first king of that united kingdom of Israel. You'll remember that Saul is not a good king. He doesn't follow the Lord. He acts out of his own anxiety. He acts out of his own worry and fear. And so he's removed from kingship and David is put into his place. David is a, a, a really central figure in the life of that united kingdom of Israel and really our expectation for the Messiah, the Savior, the one, the anointed one that will come and save is based upon uh, David. He's the preeminent figure there. And he moves the, the center of uh, Israelite life and worship to Jerusalem. He establishes Jerusalem as the center and he brings the tabernacle, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The first place they had worshipped was Gerizim, which is farther to the north. But David makes that move. David has a son Solomon, Solomon has a son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is a fool. Rehoboam's foolishness leads to civil war, because a king that's a fool will destroy his country, and so uh, they fall into civil war. The northern kingdom is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. That sometimes can be hard for us to remember, because the whole nation had been Israel, whose center of worship under David had been Jerusalem, but now the northern kingdom of Israel goes back to, they return to that first place of worship in Gerizim, and that's where they celebrate the Passover and the high feasts. It's the southern kingdom of Judah that has Jerusalem as its center. And Jerusalem is really made up of only two of the tribes, Benjamin and Judah, hence Judah, Judea, and the Jews. While the northern kingdom keeps the majority of the tribes uh, but they quickly fall into the temptations of pagan worship. And that's where the prophets Isaiah and Elijah come in. They're speaking to the northern kingdom. And they're speaking here in First Kings specifically to King Ahab. <coughs> Ahab was already a bad king. He was already falling into pagan practice. But even worse than that, Ahab had really bad taste in women. He falls for a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel is a, 
a priestess. She is a princess of the tribes of Tyre and Sidon along the coast, and they were deeply involved in sexual immorality and pagan practices of worship, sacrificing children and really doing horrible, awful things. And Jezebel brings with her all that pagan ball worship. And when Elijah goes to Ahab and Jezebel and says, you're not following the Lord, Jezebel says, I'm going to have to kill you. And so she continues to threaten Elijah, and Elijah runs away from Ahab and Jezebel twice. This is the second time that we see Elijah run away from them in fear. But when he runs away in fear, and in maybe some desperation or even hopelessness, it's important to note where he runs to. This time he runs to Mount Horeb, which if you'll remember, that's the, the moon side. That's the other side of Mount Sinai. So he's running to Sinai where the Lord had met Moses and revealed himself, revealed his covenant worship, revealed the law. So Elijah is running back to this holy place, running back to where God met Moses to go back to the beginning, to go back to the covenant, to go back to say, what do I do now? Uh, my life is at risk. And the Lord uh, appears to Elijah, but he does not appear to Elijah the same way that he had appeared to Moses. In fact, it's made strikingly clear that the Lord is going to have a different relationship with Elijah that he had with Moses. We read that there's an earthquake, but he's not in the earthquake. There's fire, but he's not in the fire. And these are the kind of powerful, magnificent ways that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Instead, we read that there's a still, quiet voice. And it's in that quiet voice that the Lord speaks to Elijah. Now, Elijah has brought to the Lord some very specific problems, right? And this is what we do in prayer. We come to the Lord and we say, okay, here's my list of problems. I'm looking for answers and solutions, right? And the Lord, as we should see over and over again, says nothing about his concern about Jezebel and Ahab. Rather, he gives Elijah more work to do right? He says, this is what you need to do. And this is often the Lord's response to us. We come to him and say, these are my worries and my fears. And the Lord says, here's the tasks that are before you. Here's what uh, you are supposed to do. And so uh, the tasks that the Lord sets to Elijah are in some ways, very strange ones. The first one especially, because he's supposed to go and anoint a king of Assyria. Now it's the Assyrians who are in a few generations going to come down from the north, from Damascus, and they're going to take over that northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to decimate it, and they're going to rename it Samaria. So these tribes outside of Benjamin and Judah, these northern tribes get taken over by the Assyrians, and they get renamed Samaria, or the Samaritans. So there are these cousins now who have been subjected to this foreign kingdom. And Elijah is playing a role in this. He is anointing this king. And you'll notice also that he's given the task of anointing his, his follower, his, his, uh, his, his predecessor, the one that's going to come after him. And, and this is, for many of us, maybe the last thing that we want to do. When we're feeling burned out, when we're feeling tired, when we're feeling overwhelmed, the last thing we want to do is to train up some new person in our place, right? To show somebody else how to do what we're doing. And yet that's the task that the Lord gives to Elijah, to go to Elisha and to uh, lay his mantle upon him, and Elisha is faithful in following. So then what does Elisha do in answering the call? Elisha is not answering the call of Elijah. That's made clear because Elijah says, I've got nothing to do with you. 
Elisha is following the call of the Lord. This is very important for us in leadership and very important for us in any kind of ministry that we do in the church. We're not following each other. We're all following the Lord together. He is our mentor. He is our role model. He is our guide. He's the one that we're turning to. And so Elisha is turning to the Lord. He's following the Lord. He's not following Elijah. And what does Elisha do? Elisha goes back to his home and he says goodbye to his family. He fulfills the law because he has a duty to his family. So he says, I'm no longer going to be with you. I'm going to separate myself from you, which is what we see in following the Lord, right? The Lord becomes our father. The church becomes our family. And then he burns his bridges. His livelihood is with these oxen, and he takes the oxen and he takes the yoke, these wooden poles that would join the oxen together so that they would walk together. They would walk in these regimented rows so that they could have this straight field, right, that would produce more crop. He burns that yoke, and he uses that as fuel in order to boil the oxen. So he is completely burning his bridge. He's completely destroying the way that he had supported himself and his family. He's completely sacrificing all of his, uh, what, subsistence, his hope, those things that he had been trusting in. He sacrifices all of that to the Lord. And he gives it as a gift to the people of his village. And he walks away empty-handed to follow the Lord. So these are the, the people, the Samaritans, and the answer to the call of ministry that we should have in mind when we're reading Luke chapter 9, because Jesus is constantly walking through Samaria, because it stands between Galilee and Jerusalem. And the Samaritans become a very important example to the Jews, because they're cousins. And maybe you've had experience with cousins, right? They're the people that we're closest to. They're the people that we're the most like. The people that look like us and often talk like us. But then they don't do everything like we do it, right? And they're often the people that we get the maddest at. The people that we get the most frustrated with. The people that we get the most kind of enmity and jealousy and strife between, right? Because they're just enough like us and yet different. And so that's who the Samaritans are to the Jews. They're so much like them, and yet they're different. And there's a couple of really important things that stand between them, especially where they worship. And you remember the Samaritan woman at the well who says this. She says, the Jews say that we should be in Jerusalem, but our father was Jacob. Right? And so she's reminding herself that we are members of the kingdom of Israel, but we worship in Gerizim. And Jesus says, true worship is found in Jerusalem, but will soon be found in spirit and in truth. And so when they go to Samaria and they walk through it, Jesus sends some people ahead of him to make way for his group. And oftentimes when we picture in our minds or we see Bible stories or we see you know, pictures uh, that are made of Jesus and the uh, apostles, we're picturing this small group, right? We're picturing Jesus with maybe 12 other people, maybe one or two others, but really Jesus is traveling with hundreds of people, at least well over 100 people. You remember that first we have uh, Peter, James, and John, this inner circle of three, then we have the 12, and then another inner circle at the same time, so not outside of the twelve, but another inner circle is that of the women. The women are an essential inner circle. The 
especially include his mother, but Mary Magdalene and others, this group of women that he had cast demons out of, and they are uh, intimate members of that, that inner group. They're providing out of their own substance, out of their own household, to feed Jesus and the disciples and others. They're ministering to them and they're caring for them. And so they're an inner circle that's essential to Jesus in this group. Besides the twelve and the women, we also have this seventy. And you remember that the seventy are walking all this time and doing ministry. And two members of the seventy, Mark and Luke, are gospel writers who were with Jesus at least from the time of his baptism. So there we at least have 120 that are walking with Jesus, but maybe many more. And for such a large contingent, for such a big group of people, you're not walking into a village unannounced. There has to be some preparation made. A place needs to be found for them to stay. A place needs to be found for them to eat. Some provisions have to be gathered. And so Jesus is sending them ahead to do all this work for this large contingent, and the Samaritans wouldn't receive them. And the reason that's given for not receiving them is because his face is set towards Jerusalem. This is the way that it's said in the ancient Near East. When a person's face is set on something, it means that they have a strong intention to do something. They have a, a strong will to go someplace. And Jesus' will is set upon Jerusalem. And there's two reasons why we could see that they wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. Number one, as I've said before, because they don't think Jerusalem is where God should be worshipped. And so this is a division between them. They don't understand Jerusalem as being the center of worship. The second reason is because of why Jesus is going there. He is going there to sacrifice himself. And even his own apostles don't agree with that. When he says, I'm going to die, they say, don't do that. Right? And they don't understand what it is that Jesus is doing in his sacrifice. They really don't even understand it until after the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even after uh, he's resurrected, they're still thinking that he's going to be establishing some kingdom. Their understanding is very limited. And so his purpose to go to Jerusalem, they know that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious authorities are set against him. They know they're trying to trap him. They know that they're trying to kill him. So the fact that he's got his face set upon it is an indication that he is going there to be sacrificed and they don't want to have any part of it. And in the midst of this now, in his face being set towards sacrifice, Jesus calls us as he always does, to sacrifice ourselves. So he's saying, I'm going to sacrifice myself, and if you want to have a part of that, if you want to receive the benefits of self-sacrifice, you have to self-sacrifice too. And that's shown in three ways by three different people that come up to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. Now, as I've said before, Elisha is this kind of gold standard for following. And sometimes we see the Old Testament and the New Testament as set at uh, odds with one another, right? Uh, like the Old Testament says this and the New Testament says this. And often people will say the Old Testament is really harsh or, or really strong and the New Testament is really gentle and forgiving. Well, that's for people that have never read the New Testament. Jesus' standard is far higher than the standard in the Old Testament, and we see it here. When they say, we want to come and follow you, Jesus says, I have no place to stay. I have no home on this earth. So if you come and follow me, you're giving up your home. And this is very true, especially in the early church. When Christians would join a worshiping community, they gave up the rest of their family. 
not only because they were giving it up, but because they were often rejected from their pagan households, because they wouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, because they wouldn't participate in the worship of idols, they wouldn't participate in the the cults that were taking place around them. And so to follow Jesus means to separate ourselves from all those practices around us. And it often means that we don't have the kind of support and system of support outside of the church. And so Jesus is saying, I've given up everything. I have no place to lay my head. Are you willing to accept that? Another one says that he wants to follow, and Jesus says, um, then let the dead bury the dead. He says, let me go and bury my father and my mother. Now this is what Elisha does, right? He goes back and he says goodbye to his family. But Jesus is saying, you can't even do that. You're not participating in those burial practices. You're not looking back to the good old days. You're not looking back to what was once before. And that's a temptation for us, isn't it? To become nostalgic, to look for a golden era that never existed, to wish things were the way that they were. And Jesus is saying that we're looking forward. And he does it again when he says uh, that those who set their face to the plow are not going to look back. Because when we're constantly looking back, when we're constantly looking back and saying, oh, I wish things the way they were, I wish I had this kind of golden age, we become nostalgic, we forget where we're at and what we're doing. And the Lord is here now, with us now calling us to move forward and if we're not listening to what he says now and looking to what he has to move forward we're going to miss the blessings and the walk with him there's no place for a golden era of nostalgia in the church and so jesus is saying you're going to have to sacrifice with me to give up all of that to be in the here and now with me waiting upon my father listening for the holy spirit and moving forward And the world is constantly trying to tempt us into idolatry and into this kind of nostalgia and this kind of looking back. And St. Paul in Galatians says we have to stand firm against that because it's a yoke of slavery. We have to stand firm and hold fast and protect ourselves against that slavery, that slavery of our minds, that slavery of the culture to looking back to those comforts, to those things that we turn to to make us feel better when times are hard. And he gives a very specific list of things that we need to look for. Why is that? Because we want to be spending a lot of time thinking about sin and death? No, but because we have no room for naivete in the church. There is no room to be naive in the church. We cannot, we cannot walk into the world thinking everything's going to be great and there's not going to be any temptations. And we can't send our children out into the world having them think that everything's going to be great and there's not going to be any temptations. Because guess what? They're all around us. And what are they? The first one that he gives is sexual immorality. Why is that? Because it's the absolutely most destructive one to the soul of those that participate in it. When we become intimate with another person, we become idol worshippers to that person. You don't need me to tell you this. We all know people, and maybe we've done it ourselves, when we fall in with somebody and we start to listen to everything they listen to and follow their uh, politics and read their books and, and totally follow everything that other person does. We become idolaters to that person. They have a kind of a ring in our nose to follow us. And when we join ourselves to this person and that person, we're joining our souls, we're affixing our souls to that person, and they get a power over us that only the Lord should have. If we're going to join ourselves in intimacy to another person, we have to make sure that that person is following Jesus. Because if they're not, we're going to quickly be going someplace that we don't want to go, like happened to Ahab. 
So sexual immorality is absolutely first. Who are we fixing ourselves to? What else are we worried about? Impurity, sensuality, when we're always thinking about our bodies and our body's own comfort, when, when comfort and getting things just right and just the right pillow and just the right chair and just the right drink and just the right lotion and just the right thing to, to fill my body, we can become completely consumed with sensuality, completely consumed with making things just right for ourselves. Idolatry, as we've talked before, can be anything where we get our, our answers, when we get our support, when we get our, our, our directions, when we get that comfort. Uh, it can be a politics for many of us, right? It can become a, a philosophy or a way of life. It can become uh, money. It can become a, a nation. It can become a, a financial institution. So many things would offer us protection and offer us safety and offer us direction, and they're nothing but idols. Sorcery, trying to get control over other people, that's a temptation. There's something here for everyone. Isn't that nice? Some of us maybe identify with one a little bit more than the other. Some of us maybe identify with all of them. Right? We want to get control over other people. We think we know what's best for them. Let me just see how I can influence you the right way. That's the temptation of sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions politics, them, those people that are doing things that way, that think that way, no room for that in the church. And there's just as much politics in the church as there is outside of it. And there's no room for that strife. No room for that jealousy. This is what the James and John, John the theologian, the writer of the gospel, and James his brother, the sons of thunder, wanted to do this to the Samaritans. They said, they're in a different political group. They're our cousins. They're not with us. Let's destroy them. Let's call down thunder from the sky. And Jesus says, That's, I came to save the world. We're here to save the world. He came because he, what, loves the world. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to love the world, no matter how corrupt and foolish it may be. Envy? Drunkenness? What's wrong with being drunk or high? Because we're useless. Because if I'm drunk or high, and all of a sudden my family or my friend needs me, what good am I going to be? How am I going to help? We can't give ourselves up to that and then make ourselves unable to serve and to answer the Lord. All of these things are temptations that we have to be aware of. And then we have to be focused and set our minds on and think about and reflect upon the virtues. What are the virtues? Virtues are things about which there is no law. St. Paul says, against these things there is no law. What does he mean by that? He means they're always good. In every situation and every time, it is good to love. There is no law against love. Love is always good. It is always timely. It is always there to raise us up out of our petty jealousies and our fear and our discontent and our frustration and our hopelessness love for God and one another will raise us up it is the only antidote along with joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control 
it is always time for self-control. And when we do these things, we crucify the flesh. St. Paul, throughout his letters, compares flesh and spirit. And he's not saying that our bodies are bad. He's not saying that creation is bad. What he's saying is that we have temptations, we have desires, that we have to be ready to rein in and to put in check so that we can wait upon the voice of the Lord and we can act with virtue. So that we can live by the Spirit, step in step with the Lord. So, Elijah is tired, he's scared, he's frustrated, he's feeling a little helpless and hopeless. Who hasn't felt like that? Guess what? You're going to again, and again and again. That's the human condition. We come up against hard things, and we start to lose hope. And we start to get frustrated, and we get tired, and we get exhausted. The question is, what do we do about it? What's our response? Elijah's response is to go back to the beginning, to go back to where the Lord met Moses. And that is a response that we can do every day, everywhere. From the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, the new tabernacle of God, the new Sinai, the new tabernacle, the new temple is right here within us. We carry the tabernacle of God. We carry Mount Sinai right in our hearts and our minds as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And if we are willing and to be quiet and listen for that still small voice, the Lord will tell us clearly what He is calling us to do. Who He is calling us to be. What our purpose is going to be. There will be temptation. There will be struggle and hardship. But the Lord is faithful. He is faithful. And he will answer our call.